Hello, and welcome to episode 7 of the Daily Zen Podcast. My name is Charlie Ambler, creator of the Daily Zen. Uh, these have been going well so far. I'm impressed with just everyone's uh, response, and so thank you. It's encouraged me to be more consistent with them than I had been previously, so I, uh, I have nothing but appreciation for everybody. Also, each episode, um, I've been getting a lot more suggestions for topics and so I appreciate that as well, and I encourage you, if you enjoy listening, to contribute your own suggestions for topics, because it makes my job easier, and uh, my job is primarily to have a, an interesting discussion with you, and the more potential ideas that you provide me with, the easier that is, so thank you. Um... Last time I talked a little bit about acceptance, politics, things like that, and it seems that a lot of people have questions relating to those things. I'm going to try to stay on the topics of mindfulness and meditation and their relationship to these different topics, so if I skip your question, I do apologize. Um, first one, how to stay happy in a negative environment which is something that everyone experiences at a certain point. And a lot of times, the attempt to stay happy in a negative environment is what makes it all the more difficult. I like to think of situations in terms of how much pressure the external situation is putting on me and how much pressure I'm putting on myself. And to try to understand the relationship between the two and so most of the time when we're in a negative situation, we double the, you know, it's kind of like a match, um, you know, a match contribution where someone is doing something or has put you in a difficult spot and that on top, like that in and of itself has negative consequences and causes you difficulty. And then a lot like worrying or any other sort of neurotic reaction to a situation, even if it's a natural feeling, you create another layer of negativity on top of that as your response. And so I, the best way to, not to stay happy, but to stay neutral in a negative environment is to realize what you contribute to a reaction to that environment and not to put yourself at fault if someone else is behaving irresponsibly or putting you in a difficult position, but to be able to distance yourself a little bit from the idea that you have in your head of what the situation is. Um, it's very easy to act on ego and to um, push yourself away from other people and to alienate them or target them as the as being at fault for your emotions, but the, you know, Short of someone actually being abusive or targeting you directly, the only person who's responsible for your emotions is you. And you're not doing yourself any favors by responding, um, upping the ante to a negative stimulus. So I find the, the people I admire most and oftentimes the people who are most effective at dealing with others are those who can just kind of brush off these sort of negative influences and people who see themselves as being important enough to not have to worry about petty trifles uh, in a weird way, despite that being an egotistical out, 
uh, outlook are the least susceptible to the negative provocations of others. So I think the best way to stay happy in a negative environment is the same way to stay happy in a positive environment, which is to be confident in yourself, to stand up for yourself, to not be too proud or too zealous, and to treat other people with respect. Um, all of which both contribute to the formation of negative situations to begin with and help you not escalate them and make them even worse for yourself when they do come about, which happens to everybody at some point. Hopefully not too much. But a lot of times those conflicts are random, sort of the way that a scientist accidentally mixes two chemicals he's never mixed together together and creates some sort of weird reaction. The conflicts we have with others are usually completely unexpected and come as a result of sort of naturally random differences between people. The unfortunate thing being that sometimes they're impactful enough in people's lives that they start to um, formulate their identities around them or use them to put themselves against other people or groups of people or form ideologies and things like that, which is a natural human inclination, but I think natural to our beastly roots rather than our enlightened roots. So, you know, a negative environment is effectively an environment created by the, the perceiver. And, you know, if a bunch of people are in a stinky subway car and there's a guy who can't smell, that's not really a negative environment for him because he doesn't notice the smell. Um, whereas everyone else is, you know, writhing in excitement to get off of the subway car because it's so stinky. So if we start to view situations that are mildly negative, you know, not those that are that are putting us in harm's way or truly, um, truly crossing boundaries, uh, it's a lot easier to see ourselves as being responsible for our reactions to other people and to situations. And a lot of people don't like to hear that advice because, you know, when someone is victimizing themselves for a situation, they don't want to believe that they're implicated in in the situation at all. They want to be able to displace the blame onto someone else. But as long as you do that, you give the situation or the person or whoever it is power over your own well-being. And the more you overreact, the more power you're effectively trading to others over your own emotional state because you start to give it up. Um, a lot of people use anger as a, myself included, you know, everyone, I think people who have anger problems know best what, what they're doing afterwards because they've had time to reflect and regret the way that they behave. And an angry impulse is sort of a cathartic attempt to release um, steam, but you're taking that steam and using it to either hurt someone else or um, up the risk of, and the bet of the whole situation and escalate it to a point that can hurt you even more. And uh, it's sort of it's sort of silly, you know. It's being angry in a in a difficult negative situation is sort of like jumping down one step um, so that you can then jump off a building. You know, I mean, you're still gonna it's still gonna the fall is still gonna kill you. You know what I mean? Um, getting angry doesn't really solve any sort of negative situation. If anything, it makes the distance between you and the end of the situation even worse. So, um, instead of trying to be happy in negative environments, we should try to navigate them realistically and understand the root of what's going on and take responsibility 
and sort of lead by example. So maybe if other people are also at fault, they will take responsibility and understand that uh, the situation is artificial and there's no real need to have conflict. You know, if there's one good purpose of conflict, it's helping people realize that the conflict was unnecessary or that they can come to some sort of compromise or some sort of better place with it. So, um, so another one about politics. I'm going to avoid this because, you know, it's a slippery slope, I feel like, to everyone just taking all of their personal grievances with the world and set feelings of difficulty and inadequacy out onto some sort of external sphere. It's like a big uh, big reality show or something. Everyone's projecting their own insecurities onto it. Our Greek politics is like our Greek theater where everyone's pretending that it has to do with them when, you know, it's really mostly just fictional. Um, someone says judgmentalism, which... Uh, is a new word I was unaware of, not to be an asshole. <laughs> but uh, I think I thought that was funny. I laughed when I heard judgmentalism. Um, but it's a good topic. And I've struggled. I'm not going to pretend I'm some sort of expert on how to deal with being judgmental because I've struggled pretty much entire adolescence and adult life with figuring out a way to navigate the world realistically and understand the essence of things without being judgmental because you see things and you have a natural inclination to sort the world and your experiences into some sort of understandable calculus by which you can future you know navigate the world in the future and that's a that's a definitively human impulse that i think is useful and constructive but should be taken with a grain of salt so we don't trust our our intellectual power too much because the process of of judgment is this process of discrimination which occurs not discrimination in like a a social sense but in discrimination in a conceptual sense where you're saying you know this concept and this thing these things are different from these things and these things are different from these things and etc cetera, etc cetera. And the more of those subjective connections you make within your head that aren't tangibly rooted in the real world, the further you distance yourself from what we call pure experience in Zen, which is the consciousness that comes from meditation. Uh, and the process of meditation is effectively the process of shedding judgments, labels, distinctions, discriminations, preferences, all of these things. Uh, and quelling the mind that wants to sort the world into concepts. Um, the idea being that as soon as you translate an experience or a thing into a concept, it loses its true essence because you're adding a step to a one-step process, effectively. Now, of course, in order to get through the day and deal with our distinctly human needs, which are often... Um, quote-unquote artificial and divorced from nature, especially in modernity, there's a necessity to be judgmental and to discriminate and to sort the world into this and that. And to pretend that we can stop doing that as people who, are, who have decided to be in the world and not live in a monastery or a, a church or something is, is okay, and we have to accept that we have to make judgments. Now, I think the, the, the 
truly valuable thing about meditation is that it allows you to sort of live both lives simultaneously, um, which isn't as chaotic or schizophrenic as it might sound. I mean, it's a, it's a challenge to both live in the world of concepts, human, human relationships, um, material, the material world, the world of ideas, um, the world of, you know, artificiality and, um, language and symbol, all these things, culture, and then simultaneously live in the world of the spirit, which is sort of based on pure experience and pure understanding and deep intuition and, um, unspeakable truths, basically. And most spiritual literature, to the extent that it's effective, is a guiding light towards those, finding those truths within yourself, because they can't be tr submitted, they can't be transmitted through symbolic language or symbolic, um, any sort of symbolic system. You have to experience them for yourself. Which is where we see the sort of conflict between science and religion, because science is materialism, it's a it's a form of navigating the material world, the external world outside of the self. Um, and we kind of see the difference between science and religion in seeing the things that science can't explain, like the deep workings of the brain, the sources of, you know, things like depression and anxiety. You can get to a certain root, the same way with mathematics, you can get to a certain root of all things, but you can't get past that. You know, you can't get past the smallest particle that's understandable to humans and you can't understand the essence of the universe or the essence of the brain or the essence of any of these things because those are unsymbolic unspeakable um, deep internal understandings and so the there's sort of this symbiotic um, you know magnetic relationship between spirituality and um, materiality, I guess, which is also the relationship between um, judgment and pure experience, between sim the symbol and the real. Uh, and the two sort of chase each other around, you know, the way that uh, um, the way that two animals quarrel or, you know, uh, maybe the way that a, um, an atom's um, nucleus is orbited by its other components or whatever. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, so I don't really, can't really use the language of science to explain this. But it's sort of this, it has to be this symbiosis because we can't live purely the life of the spirit and you can't live purely the life of materiality. Life of pure materiality leads to death effectively because the, the internal self and the the internal truth is neglected in favor of the external truth, which leads to excess and um, clinging and all of these terrible things that cause people to behave terribly and die young and all this stuff. Um, and then you can't live purely in the spirit because you end up, you know, burying yourself in a cave and focusing only on yourself for all of eternity, which people can decide to do on their own volition. But um, in this world, I do think it's important to find a balance between materialism and spiritualism and so the lesson is not to overcome quote-unquote judgmentalism or judgment or um, the process by which your brain discriminates between different ideas and concepts and things but to um, have this sort of different vehicle 
that you can cultivate in your mind that allows you to understand the limitations of your judgmental mind and your conceptual mind and to navigate your life simultaneously understanding that some of the deepest truths can't be explained or symbolized or communicated with others and that some of the necessities of life can't be unspoken or spiritualized and to make peace with the relationship of the two. Um, the writer uh, Eliad called them um, Mercia Eliad. I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's uh, Romanian, I think. But he said the, you know, he wrote a whole book about the the difference between the sacred and the profane in um, the various religious traditions in history. And the sacred serves an important role the same way that the profane serves an important role. I mean, people need to eat and shit and you know, have sex, do whatever, all these things that they do in the material world, but they also need to reflect, to introspect, to understand the self and to understand the unknowability of the essence of everything, um, and to be humble and sort of submit themselves before the, uh, the power of nature. And the combination of those two things allows us to live in balance. When you see people erring too much on the side of judgment or materialism, which I think you see a lot in modernity because the spiritual element as a result of the rise of science and the fall of religion, the spiritual element has declined significantly. So you see a lot of people who are um, very philosophically and spiritually unfilled despite all of their attempts to master the material world or the world of concepts. Um, you see academics who don't know how to live you know, in the real world. You see rich people who um, who are never satisfied despite being, you know, in the top, of very, very top of the totem pole. You see people who treat other people like objects, whether it's in relationships or in war or whatever, all these things. And, you know, without the spiritual element, it's difficult to understand that some problems can't be solved through judgment or preference or material obsession or any of these things. Um, some problems can only, a lot of problems, some of the deepest problems of the world can only be solved through making peace with the fact that they're unanswerable, looking within and finding uh, a certain degree of peace inside of yourself. So I hope that was a helpful extrapolation for whoever asked that one. What's next? Mindful Skeptic asked, who's a, a, a cool account, I think, I believe. Um, yeah, they post a lot of nice quotes and retweets and stuff. They asked, um, or just said, the, t the search for purpose in life, which sort of, tie, I mean, obviously ties back into the whole spiritualism versus materialism thing. Because... When the mind, I think, is too focused on concepts and on solving the puzzles of logic that come from symbolic experience of the world, it feels like there's this problem to be solved, which is the meaning of life or the purpose of life. Uh, but the essence of life is unknowable, and the reason for living is unknowable. And so trying to solve this puzzle uh, symbolically when it can't be navigated symbolically. It kind of has to be discovered essentially, you know, through meditation or self-reflection, other forms of self-reflection, inquiry, you know, dialectic.
didactic, whatever you want to call it. Um, they can't be navigated symbolically, and so they can sort of questions like the purpose of life or the meaning of life can only be navigated spiritually by looking within and having direct experience of, you know, what is inside yourself um, and what is outside in the world and sort of reconciling the two um, and being okay with maybe not finding an answer because there isn't, there isn't one answer for every person. I mean, each person is going to look inside themselves and spend years and years uncovering all these layers of sediment that have built up as a result of culture and experience and conditioning and self-questioning and reliance of con on concepts and shed those slowly over time. It's a very slow and long process and it never really ends, but you kind of get a little closer to the essence. And when you meditate for a long time, you can kind of feel yourself living more truly and sort of knowing intuitively what is right. In contrast to when you're living uh, mindlessly and you think that certain things are right, but later find out that they're wrong uh, because you were bogged down by all these subjective interpretations and concepts that come from not reflecting. So the search for purpose never ends. Uh, and for a lot of people, it never begins at all, especially today, I think. Um, and so just by being kind to yourself and reflective and trying to understand others and being critical is also important, um, but also not neglecting the spiritual element that we were talking about earlier, which is sort of just an acceptance of all things. Okay, so the next question is, um, someone asked about the benefits of meditation, which a lot of people are hesitant to discuss, especially in sort of the Zen realm, because um, to focus on any benefits is considered, uh, you know, antithetical to the practice, and it is. And so, I, you know, I, I really honestly believe that if you focus too much on the benefits of anything, um, doing it will sort of be tinged with this vain attempt to uh, experience some sort of result. And a lot of people that are really productivity-minded and uh, material-focused, as we were just discussing, will disagree with me on that one. Um, but they'll find that the itch that they need to scratch that leads them to meditation won't be scratched by it if they look for it, um, to it too much for results. And so it's crucial to understand that when you meditate, you will experience quote-unquote benefits, uh, more and more of them over time, but only to the extent that you're able to let go of the purpose of the activity and sort of access your pure mind while you're meditating. And so there's really no use in discussing the particular benefits because understanding what they are um, is only going to make it well, it's only going to make your mind louder when you're actually doing the practice because you're going to be wondering, you know, am I supposed to be feeling this? Am I supposed to be feeling this? You know, why why aren't I enlightened yet? Why aren't I, you know, feeling less anxious or depressed or whatever? Um, and the more you think about that thing, all those things, the, you know, the more work you have to do to overcome those questions in your head while you're trying to quiet your mind. So just do it. Just sit. In Zen, that's the 
that's the big takeaway and that's the main thing that teachers try to say is just sit just practice each day in silence you know close your eyes sit and focus on um your breathing and your your internal process without participating in the dialogue just listen uh, in Zen, there's another saying, knock on the sky and listen to the sound. That's basically what you're doing when you sit. You're just sort of accepting everything and letting whatever comes into your head wash over you. And doing this as sort of this purification ritual that allows your brain to settle itself. And there's a million benefits that come from that. But discussing them, again, is only going to hinder you from achieving them, which is a paradox, but life is full of those so there's no use really discussing that any further and I hope that people who sit or have sat for a while understand this and people who um, are just starting it might seem kind of weird to be doing something for no reason and sort of just waiting to see about the benefits but that requires a certain religious faith um, of sitting just to sit and learning to do things just to do them uh, without some sort of ulterior motive and that will alone just slowly transform your entire uh, MO and your life as a result. So I only got through a few of these. Uh, I'm trying to keep these short so that I can do a lot of them. So I'll answer the rest next time. Thanks for listening. Uh, Please drop any suggestions or topic ideas you might have on twitter.com slash dailyzen and Uh, follow the podcast on iTunes and if you like it, leave a review and uh, if you don't, don't listen to it. Um, And if you like it a lot, I uh, implore you to support the podcast and my work here, which I don't ever expect to get paid for because I'm doing it for 10 years and, you know, it's mostly a labor of love. Um, But I do have a book that I sell on Amazon and uh, if you want it, you can get it, and that is a gesture of support that does go to help me continue to do this. Mostly because it boosts my morale and makes me feel like uh, more people are reading it and finding value in it. So thank you for listening, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.